0: Well, ladies and gents, I wonder if I uh, can interrupt your conversations, that you'd be kind enough to allow me uh, to invite you back uh, to listen to me. That would be awesome. Uh, We're going to dig straight into the Bible this morning. We're going to start our study. re-enter our study into the book of Hebrews. We've spent about a year and we're going to engage for the next four or six months on the last few chapters, chapters 10, 11, 12 and 13, and see what God has to say uh, through us. So if you've got a Bible there, I wonder if you would find Hebrews chapter 10 and 11. If you're in one of the church's Bibles, then that is on page 1209, page 1209. If you need a Bible this morning, do just put a hand up. I think Steve, Steve, would you be kind enough? Thanks very much. Steve will uh, bring you a Bible. Just stick a hand up in the air, and uh, that that will come to you. As I say, Hebrews chapter 10 and 11-ish, and this is on page 1208 and 1209, 1208. That's where we'll be. But I wonder if you'll come with me first of all in your imaginations. There she was. She could remember the events quite clearly. The mists of two or three or four years hadn't dulled them entirely. They were so dramatic and significant in her life. She remembered that for generations prior, her people had been enslaved. And as each decade had passed, and each generation had grown up, that enslavement had become crueler and more harsh. They were treated like objects to be possessed by their Egyptian masters and families. And it seemed to her that there was no possible escape. That this was her life and would always be her life. And if she ever had children, then it would be passed on to her children. It made a query whether kids was right. And then she heard the rumours. I mean, she knew the man because the Israelites called him a traitor. Born an Israelite, but brought up by the Egyptian leader. Not a true Israelite. And a murderer and an outlaw. And yet people were saying that Moses was back. Moses, who she remembered as a teenager, could hardly talk. He'd stumble over his words. How could he be our spokesperson? She laughed it off. But amazingly, Aaron and Moses, the two brothers, were allowed into Pharaoh's presence. And then she remembered they all were talking about it. The months of those unexplainable natural disasters The months of those events which seemed to ravage the Egyptian farmlands, but leave them unscathed. The Israelites never came to harm. And then amazingly that night, what a night. Banging on the doors. Laughter and energy. We're going tonight. Pharaoh had said the people can go. The freedom is yours. She gathered up the few belongings she had in her bed set and immediately went round to her neighbour. She knew they'd need help gathering up the kids. And then they're on the road. They're heading into the desert. She still cannot make any sense at all of how they got across the river. She remembers in the darkness being called forward, expecting the water to lap to her knees, to her waist, to over her head, and yet she just sloshed her way through mud and gunk until she clambered out on the dry side. For months after, she had the nightmares of the squeals of the horses, particularly the horses, though the men were shouting in terror as well as those waves crashed down on on Pharaoh's elite troops. And they realized they truly were free. They weren't going to be taken back to captivity. But you see, all of that was years ago. Years ago. They'd been in the desert now for a long, long time. She had her own kids, and she wondered whether her children would ever know stability. Because every three or four months, Moses would say, the the fire's moved again. Come on, we're off. Following a fire, a smokestack, to navigate a desert? It seems so foolish now. And food? Surely we're not called to rely on God's supernatural intervention every time we're hungry. (coughs) And of course, Moses told a good tale. Of a promised land to come. Of a future which would be wonderful and safe and secure. And of course it was poetic, a milk and honey. <laughs> but would that promise ever be real? Would that promise ever come about? And so she'd started to think, surely it's better to go back. I mean, it was cruel and it was hard, but at least I had a home. And at least I knew where I stood, even if where I stood was at the bottom of the pile. And at least I had the dignity of providing myself and not having to rely on God sending manna from heaven. What is it? So maybe I should go back to the old way of life. Before I trusted this promise and followed this leader God had sent. This Messiah, Moses. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that's a telling of the story called Exodus in the Bible. It's the story of how God sent a great rescuer, Moses, to take people who were enslaved and, and bring them to a promised land, but how they wandered for a whole lifetime, a whole lifetime in a wilderness, in an uncertainty, and they constantly were drawn back to the old way. Now, in the letter called Hebrews, written now to Christians, like you and I, or those exploring faith, like some of us this morning, that's the main image that he uses as he talks about the Christian life. That yes, we look back and we say, not Moses, but Jesus was our great rescuer. And there were things that we were enslaved to and imprisoned to. And I feel liberated from them. And it was all very dramatic in those early days. Uh, I became a Christian at 20 and it was all very exciting. Not quite walking through the Red Sea, but sometimes not far off. But also being a Christian involves promises that are not yet. A future ideal that seems unimaginably wonderful that is still to come. And particularly on a Wednesday, the hump day of the week, those promises seem so far away, don't they? Particularly when marriage feels like divorce would be a good option. Those promises seem so far away. Particularly when you start to wonder, why did I have one extra child? Things would have been so much better if there was just two of them. Man-to-man markings are an option then. Yeah? The promises seem so far away, life is so hard, you start to think, I want to go back. I want to go back to the time before I trusted the promises of God, before I trusted Jesus. I want to leave this moment where I'm the oddity in the workplace as the only Christian and go back to when it was more respectable, just to be like everyone else. I I want to leave this radical, raw demand to follow Jesus with everything I I am and just go back to when it was all a bit more sensible. And just a little portion, for tax reasons, went to charity. And not Jesus telling me to give loads. I actually want to go back to those moments where I was just accepted and wasn't expected to do incomprehensible acts of kindness that cost me so dearly. I don't know if that resonates with you. It certainly does with me. And and looking at your faces this morning, I know it does with most of you, that image. And so by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 10, which is where we are now, we start to read things like this. If you've got your Bible there, uh, look at chapter 10 and sentence 35. Chapter 10 and sentence 35. Remember, he's writing to us, people just like us. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. I know you're in a wilderness and it seems hard, but don't throw it away. It will be richly rewarded. Keep going. Or look at Hebrews chapter 10, sentence 36, the very next sentence. You need to persevere. Keep going. Keep moving forward. It's not the most glamorous word ever to describe being a Christian, is it? Persevere. Keep moving forward. Doing the will of God and you will receive what has been promised. It will come. It will come. Or look at sentence, lastly, sentence 39. Very similar language. But we do not want to belong to those who shrink back and destroy, but to those who have faith and are saved. you see what he's saying? It is hard. It is like being in a wilderness. The promise does seem a long way away. The past life you live starts to look quite attractive, and you start to think, I want to go back. He says, don't. Persevere. Keep going. Now, can I just pull into an aside for a moment? I don't think, from my experience, I've ever seen anyone quit on Jesus in one dramatic moment I don't think I've ever seen that I don't think I've ever seen anyone shrink back in one dramatic moment and go and be and go from being all on for Jesus to totally switched off now the way that happens is a thousand small choices a thousand small shrinks back. A, a, a thousand small things thrown away. I, I, I'm not going to prioritise that relationship with a, with a Christian friend, who's, which is go, so good for me. And from once a week, it becomes once a fortnight, it becomes once a month. Now we only see each other and passing. You're throwing away, little bit like little bit. Throwing away Jesus bit by bit. It's made in those thousand little choices of your internet usage. As you... Instead of fighting your porn use, simply contain it within one window of your week. and You're throwing it away, going back, going back in a thousand small choices. So what Hebrews chapter 10, 11, 12 and 13, because the wonderful thing about the Bible is it doesn't whistle in the dark. It doesn't close its eyes, pretending everything is all right. It doesn't look through rose-tinted glasses. The Bible speaks to us in our world right now. The wonderful thing about these chapters we're going to look at, we're going to summarise just now, is it answers the question, so how do we not shrink away but step forward? How do we not throw away but hold fast? How do we not turn back but actually move forward? How do we flourish and, and thrive and pursue and hold fast to Jesus. And it gives us three answers. They're incredibly practical. I'm going to try and drive them home this morning and see which ones are most relevant to you. And is going to help us in a bit with this too. The first is find other people. The first is being a Christian is not a lone ranger, isolated existence. We are herd animals. We're sheep designed to live in a herd. Yeah, And so find others that demand inex- incomprehensible Excellence from you when it comes to following Jesus. Look with me at chapter 10, sentences 24 to 25. Chapter 10, sentence 24. It says this Let us consider, let us, plural, consider how we, plural, may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of those promises approaching. Do you see that? Do not neglect, do not quit regularly meeting together with people that can encourage you. That word literally means to put courage or strength in, encourage you, and spur you on. Now, I love that word spur. Just give yourself a brain break for a moment and and come with me, okay? That word spur is exactly the word we're imagining it means. It's like the, the spurs on the heels of someone riding a horse. Now, I used to do quite a lot of horse riding when I was a late teens, early 20. I used to do three-day eventing and all that kind of stuff. And then I spent a year or so working on a game farm in Zambia, Kitwe, area of Zambia. And the only way to get around, particularly when it was wet, was on horseback. I used to love it, riding this horse. And uh, when I first got out there, I had this horse called Acacia. She was about two and a half years old. You wouldn't ride a horse that young in England, but we did there. Beautiful, beautiful shiny chestnut, wonderful horse. Black mane, shiny chestnut, beautiful animal. But a little bit on the feisty side, and from a snake bite, blind in one eye. So it was a bit kind of uh, tense on its toes on that, on that side, right? And this animal wasn't the easiest to control, and after a week or so of kind of being thrown off a couple of times and finding it very uncomfortable, I decided I'd put some spurs on. I'd never used spurs before on a horse, but I decided needs must. Now, I clambered onto this horse, and I think partly because I was tense, because I'll be honest, I was a little bit uh, afraid. This horse stood seven hands one. If you know horse sizes, that's big. That's a big beast of a horse, right? So partly because I was a little bit tense, partly because I was a little bit frightened, it must have sensed, something. And this horse started to kick and bark and throw its head around and, and try and get me off. And in my fear and anxiety, I just clamped my legs <laughs> as hard as I could to stay on, forgetting I had these metal studs in the back of my, of, of my boots. And into the ribs these spurs want. Now this horse... Absolutely flew like Pegasus, right? It just took, and I'm just hanging on, I, no reins left. I'm hanging on to the front of the stout. My knees are like this, four more gone. I'm just, I'm literally hanging on for dear life. And this thing is pelting through the African bush. We go through this herd of six or seven giraffes. They think it's great fun, so they join in. So now I'm galloping along in absolute terror with giraffes. Now, if you know anything about giraffe, giraffes have very unusual hips. A little bit of medical biology for you, veterinary science. That they can actually rotate their hip in a full so they can't just kick backwards, they can kick sideways, directly out, like that, just like that, right? Okay, it's like the can-can here. So I'm galloping along, and with these hooves, now they were probably six or 12 feet away from me, but they felt like these giraffe hooves were like right in front, I'm like giraffe hooves as I'm galloping, 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 and I could not stop this thing. I've never ever moved so fast on four legs in my life. We actually stopped when we skidded to a halt at the fencing around the game farm, seven and a half miles from where we'd started at that homestead. And to my mind, we've done it in about 6.2 seconds, okay? Just incomprehensible act because of being spurred on. Doing something you could not imagine ever doing because of being spurred on. Do you see? Meet together with a smaller group of people which, who are designed to spur you on to do something incomprehensible to the world. Something that people look at and say, I cannot believe, like I looked at that horse, Acacia, I cannot believe you could move that fast. I cannot, cannot believe you could be that generous. Cannot believe it. I have three friends, three people. Some of you know some of them, actually. Three of them, who, over the last five years, have remortgaged their house to give to a church project. The world says that's incomprehensible. That There is someone who's going to pay off their mortgage by the age of 50, And have all the liberty that that brings, and instead, for the cause of Christ, they add 10 more years to their mortgage to free up capital. Incomprehensible to the world, spurred on, spurred on to do something unbelievable. So, one of our big questions I have for you this morning is where are you having those conversations? What smaller group do you have around you of people who know you, love you, are connected into your life where you are spurring and encouraging them and they are spurring you on? Do not neglect meeting together like that. We meet as larger groups like this to praise Jesus together and hear his word taught. But to take, to take that action, that intention and make it action requires that smaller group around you. Chrissy joining the church has been wonderful in so many ways as part of our staff team over the last three or six months or whatever it is. And one of them is she's made it abundantly clear to me that I was not doing this. And so we have established, as in I mean I personally, not in my role as pastor, I mean I, Alex, So she's driven us to establish a small group, a pastor's and partner's small group. We meet fortnightly, we study the Bible, we pray together, we share life, and we spur one another on. And what it's done for me, friends, is take good intentions and good sermons I have not just heard but preached and made them into obedient actions. Then it's taken intentions that I had and made them realities that I'm living. In some ways, in a very small level, but very profound. Like I always had the great intention for for Mission to take the lads on my street out for curry regularly, have a beer, share life, and no doubt Jesus would come up because he's a big part of who I am. Had it happened? No. Not until I had a small group around me to spur me on and encourage me in that. And now it's happening. And what's not to love? A night out, no children, no wives, beer, curry. What an equation. Yeah but sharing life. And now we have talked about Jesus, and we have talked about church, and we have talked about faith. And it's lovely. But it took a small group to do that. And if not a small group, friends, then it takes friendships. I love the fact the Bible leans into friendships so much more than actually traditional British culture does. We're very bad in the UK and UK culture at at friendships. We're very bad at friendships. But the Bible loves them and just assumes them. You read the Bible and you read people like Jonathan and David, so connected and entwined into each other's lives, so affectionate to each other as friends, that when they were parted, they wept. Now, these guys weren't pansies. They were warriors. They didn't shed tears lightly. I do, ever since I had children, I cry at TV adverts. I don't know what that, I used to be hard as nails, I had children, now I cry at Timothy adverts. I don't know what's happening. That, these guys weren't like that. It shows the depth of their friendship. Or take Mary and Elizabeth. What a friendship they had. I mean, that was cross-generational. Elizabeth is um, uh, yeah, Elizabeth. Sorry, is, uh, 40, 50 years old. Mary's probably 14, 15. They're blood relatives. They're, they're brought together because they're both pregnant when people would have frowned on their pregnancy. You're too young, Mary. You're too old, Elizabeth, to be having a baby. It brought them together. What a beautiful friendship they had. What a journey together they made as they loved, supported, cared for, and held each other accountable. Get a small group around you. Get some friends to help you. Chrissy's going to tell us a little bit more about that. Let's look at the second thing that keeps us going, keeps us pushing forward, keeps us not turning back, keeps us active. (coughs) This second one is found in chapter 12, sentences 1 to 2. And this isn't about others around us. This is actually about how we think of ourselves, So this isn't about having people around us to spur us on. This is actually about how we understand our own journey with Jesus and the imagery, if you like, that we attach to it. It's all about fighting for the violent self-discipline that slaughters sin and pursues Jesus. That fighting for the internal, violent and aggressive self-discipline, which means we slaughter sin and we pursue Jesus. Have a look at uh, chapter 12, sentences 1 and 2. This is what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Do you see some of the language there? Did you see there it says, let us throw off? Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It's very similar to the language of sentence four. Have a look at sentence four as well. Very similar language. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. You're fighting sin. That's internal. Now, just pause for a moment. All sin is, is doing things your way, not God's way. That's all it is. Having your intentions, not God's intentions. Your agenda trumping God's agenda. That's what sin is. It's an internal thing. He says you should struggle against it so much you might shed blood in that self fight. That you've got to throw it off if it's entangling and tripping you. And both those terms, struggle and throw off, are wrestling terms, fighting terms, military terms. Come with me to the school playground for a moment. We were picking up the kids on Friday, Hannah and I together. And as we walked to the gate, they were lining the kids up as they do we were slightly early. And we saw two lads scrapping. Both them, Hannah and I breathed a sigh of relief when we realised it wasn't any of our children. And these two boys having, having a, almost a proper fight. It was certainly no longer a play fight. I suspect it started like that. It wasn't kind of a full-blown teeth across the playground, you know, that kind of thing. But it, they were, I mean, terrible technique, but they were doing their best to have a proper fight. A couple of teachers or a teacher walked over and she just yelled at them, Boys, boys, boys! So it sounded just like me with the kids, Boys! And they, they broke off and they went their two ways. Well, this word struggle, this word wrestle are not that kind of fighting. They are blood, it talks about blood drawing fighting, it talks about real fighting, it talks about fighting to the death, the death of sin, right? And any fight that leads to one of the battlers dead is a serious fight. Now my question is, is that the kind of imagery when you think of the Christian life? I mean, don't mishear me. God, our perfect parent, is the most tender, gentle father you can ever know. That Jesus himself describes himself as a mother hen crouching. Caring over her chicks. Then in Revelation, we're told that God reaches down and wipes away with his finger your tear. But if that idea of tenderness and gentleness is the only image you have of the Christian life, then it's incomplete and deficient. Because it's also this battleground. Not battling the world or people out there. Do you notice that? But inside you. And the same kind of Tough imagery is used not just in our slaughtering of sin, but in our pursuit of Jesus. Look again at sentence one of chapter 12, would you with me? About halfway round that, that clause of sentence one, it says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Again, very similar to the words in sentence seven. Look at sentence seven with me. Endure. Hardship as discipline. Both run with perseverance and endure their marathon terms, not a a sprint. They keep going, keep moving forward, keep putting one step in in front of the other. It's going to hurt. Friends, no one ever said following Jesus would be easy. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said following him would be like carrying your own crucifix to your own slaughter. Hard. Hard weighty, enduring, persevering. It's a different image to perhaps lots of us have about what it means to follow Jesus. One of the things that has most helped me with this, this slaughtering of sin and this pursuit of Jesus, is just having one, maybe two people at any given point in my life who I can share everything with. I mean, literally everything. Everything. Beyond talking to Hannah. So when I first became a Christian at university, I wasn't thought through about it, but some wonderful lads, Nathan and Richard and Ian, we all became each other's best men years later. Not all of us got married, but when those that did. And two days after I chose to follow Jesus, 19th of February, 1998, was the first time I told someone I was a Christian. Two days later, 21st, they they knocked on my door and said, Alex, hey. We have a, we have a like, lads' night on a whatever night, Tuesday, Thursday, whatever it was. and Why don't you come along as well? I'm like, lads' night. I mean, I used to play rugby, so I knew what one of them was, yeah? I'm like, yes. Well, I did Christians did that. Awesome, right? Off I went. And we just sit down. It's like all sober in their house. And they make tea. I'm like, lads' night, right? And then they just pour out the realities. They talk about porn. They talk about laziness with studies and work. Like, what is this? called sharing life it's called slaughtering sin it's called finding a Jonathan to help you as David finding an Elizabeth to help you when you're married so together we can do it and then when um, we moved to Hong Kong young married it was a chap called Christian originally from the Netherlands living in Hong Kong we'd meet about every ten days we'd share life we'd share struggles we'd text each other yeah nothing hidden Nothing judged, together pursuing Jesus, slaughtering sin. And we moved to, to Shanghai. It was a chap called Ron, Ron and Ali. But just with Ron, Ron and I. We'd meet in a little restaurant called East West and have breakfast, almost weekly. Some, I th- sometimes wonder what the waitresses must have thought, because there were times we were both like almost crying or crying. It'd be like this, and she'd be coming, do you want a to top-up on your teeth? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> you no? Know, right? Yeah? And then when I went, we came back to the UK and we were, we were in Aylesbury and it was a chap called Martin. He was 55. I was whatever I was then, 29, 30. A whole generation ahead he'd done all the things that were coming my way. What a relief to discover he struggled with the same things. Yeah, sex, money and power. It was kind of encouraging, kind of a bit bleak. I've got 30 years of this to go. Does it not change? Yeah? And now I'm here Christian's come back, or he's now in the UK. He's actually up in Edinburgh. Christian and I, once a month, we have a 90-minute window. We Skype, FaceTime, phone call, whatever. For 90, 90 minutes, we share life. Share life. To slaughter and pursue. To slaughter and pursue. My question there is, you see, is that the kind of image you have of your following of Jesus, the kind of, kind of way you view it? As hard as... Needing energy is needing commitment. And where does that committed self-discipline to slaughter sin and to pursue Jesus, where does that land in your scheduling and your daily priorities? Third and finally, so we've talked about the need of people around us. We've talked about the internal self-discipline that's needed. Third and finally, um, it's about leaders. It's about remembering those who can inspire you to be better And I'll give you a heads up. I'm going to talk for about two or three more minutes and then I'm going to invite you to talk together about the leaders and people in your life who have inspired you and helped you. Okay? So if you've got a Bible there, would you turn to chapter 13 now? Hebrews chapter 13 and sentence seven. This is all about follow leaders whose lives and lips have honoured Jesus. Imitate people whose lives and lips have honoured Jesus. Look at Hebrews 13, sentence seven. It says this, Remember your leaders... Who spoke the word of God to you? Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you see that? Remember, consider, and imitate. Remember your leaders. Who, who is it who has led you well? I don't mean in a formal position of authority, I mean in influence they've had. Who, who's a leader who's led you well? Now consider and remember their words, how they taught you Jesus. And consider their way of life. Did their their works match their words? Did their living, was it true to the way they spoke? Their walk and their talk in sync. And then what do you do? Imitate. Do you see that? Remember your leaders who taught the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of the way of their life. And then imitate their faith. So when I obeyed this verse earlier this week and listed, I had a long list, an amazing list of people God has put in my life. Some of them were people like Andrew Wheeler, who's now up in Carlisle. Andrew and I were students together. We could not be more poles apart. I was that cocky, archetypal, rugby-playing lad. yeah, And he was NHS, inch-think glasses, religious studies student who cut his own hair. I mean, we could not be further apart. He loved Jesus. And after hearing that I'd become a Christian, he came knocking on my door and said, let's start studying John's gospel. And for a year, almost a whole year, we met, and he just took me through John's gospel, taught me John's gospel. What a great man that was. But then when we were about to leave university, I was off to do a job in Cambridge, which had no salary. I felt that's what I should do. And I was trying to scrape together the pennies for a car that was needed. And he gave me the entirety of the savings that he had left at the end of uni to buy a car. I bought this matte black, 15-years-old Ford Escort Diesel. It was an awesome... Everyone loves their first car, don't you? I love that car. I love that car, right? So I think about him. I think, yeah, something's happening there. <laughs> Memories of the first car. Yeah, we've got children in the room. Right, so, right, so do you remember them, right, and imitate them? Or I think, I think of Jill Island. I think of Jill Island when I first started working for an organisation of Christians in Sport, was also on staff. Now, she taught me loads of skills, but more than that, she had the most remarkable heart. Generous, open. Numerous times I saw her give away the last of her money as as a single lady working for a Christian charity, living in really expensive Oxford. Numerous times. Unknown to the recipient She would give over the last penny, unsure where her rent for next week would come from. Remarkable woman who taught me so much. Or I think of Ron Howard Burt. Now, in God's providence, Ron Howard Burt has has intersected my life at various moments. I first met him when I was about 14. I wasn't following Jesus. He was a fantastic guy, ex-army sergeant major, ex-army boxing boxing champion, now working as a teacher in a school, and just didn't know what health and safety meant. I mean, we loved him at the school I was in. So he used to take us for rugby fitness training, and one of the things he had us do, we'd have to run up to the tennis courts. And you know the massive nets around the tennis court, not the actual tennis net, the, the massive protective nets around them? we'd have to climb up the netting, balance on the top on that little thin wire, and then jump down onto an old mattress he got out of a tip, out of a, out of a skip just up the way, and then go running off again. Well, one time there was a tower block with about five or six um, levels to the tower block in the school, and it had a stairwell going up right the way up the middle, and they, they were doing some building work, there was a big pile of bricks, so he said, right lads, pair up, pair up, we all pair up, he goes, we're gonna do some stair training, build up the quads, he said, in your pairs, one of you grab a brick, Run up the stairwell carrying a brick. When you get to the top, sixth floor, look down the stairwell, see where your partner is, six floors down, and drop the brick to them. Isn't that awesome? Right? Crazy. Shall I tell you one other thing he did? Just because, as I remember, it's awesome. We're, doing, we're in the swimming pool doing swimming training, and there's a whole bunch of scaffolding <laughs> poles outside the swimming pool doors. A big dive. So he sees these poles, he loves to improvise, he goes, This will be good. Pair up into team lads, right? Half of you swim down at the deep end, and half of you get the poles and lob the poles in, right? And what the team in the water have to do is build the poles underwater till it breaks the surface. So we're swimming underwater like this, with like vroom, scaffolding poles, like vroom, cutting through the water. I loved him, right? Loved him. Awesome. One day he called me into his office, actually to tell me off because of the words on a shirt that I was working out in called me into his office, and he said, Alex, I want to talk to you. You invest so much in your body. I still do, obviously. Got the whole barrel now, right? (laughs) He said, but I want to talk to you about your soul. How much effort are you putting into your soul? Because your soul lasts forever, Alex. And then he gave me a Bible. I didn't open that Bible for years. He gave me this Bible, and years later at university, I opened the Bible, and it was full of post-it notes, written to me, not generic, written for Alex, with verses he was drawing my attention to, a little one in Ephesians 5 and 6, Alex, you'll probably one day get married, this is what your wife should be like. Amazing, amazing. And then years later, at 23, I haven't seen him since I was 16 now, at 23, we go back to my hometown of Aylesbury as a married couple, because I was working in Oxford, Hannah was in London, it was well located, we go back, we start looking for a church, we walk into Southcourt Baptist Church, as a church, one evening, see what it was like, is this for us, we walk in, I sit down, I look down the row, six, seven seats up, people up, there's Mr. Ron Howard Burt. I still have to call him Mr., don't I, do you notice that, right? And I look down, and he just looks across, smiles, and goes, Alex, Jesus found you then. Isn't that amazing? Alex, Jesus found you. My name, how many students had he seen in that time as a teacher? Hadn't seen me for six years. Didn't even blink. Alex, Jesus found you. And then, much more recently, a couple of years ago, I heard from his wife, Jackie. Now they're in their 80s, 85, 87, I don't know. They're well into their 80s. Jackie, his wife... She goes, Alex, Alex, I'm just writing to a bunch of people, would you mind praying for us? I'm like, no problem, what, what's up, what's, what, you know, what's going on? And in her reply, she goes, oh, we're in Cornwall, blah, 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 and I wrote back, I said, oh, you're in Cornwall, have you retired there, got a nice retirement home and stuff? And she just wrote back, she said, no, 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 when I retired, she was about 10 years younger than, than Ron, she goes, when I retired, we decided to move to Cornwall, we run a heroin addicts rehabilitation centre at 86. And the particular thing she wanted me to pray for is that Ron had gone sea kayaking. He's 86 years old. He goes sea kayaking in the channel, gets caught in a current, and the lifeguards, the coast guard, have to pick him up because he's drifted into the shipping lanes. And their oil tankers have actually had to stop because Ron is in the shipping lane in a <laughs> kayak. I mean, this is Ron all over it. So, remember your leaders who taught the word of God to you. Consider their way of life and imitate their faith. So you've got two minutes to turn to someone near you. Who's the leader who has inspired you? Why? And what does it mean for you to imitate them? Off you go, off you go, off you go.